So welcome to the next episode of the Muscle and Mindfulness podcast. And this week, I have a very special guest in the name of Keshav. Um, now, I've only recently discovered him via Instagram, but I've also seen him on YouTube. And the guy speaks a lot of sense. And as soon as I uh, started listening to his stuff, I was like, you know what? I need to pick his brains. I need to see, I need to learn more about him. And um, just obviously uh, get some ideas on how how he helps people and obviously how it can help uh, the listener as well. So Keshav, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's uh, it's like I was saying before, it's an honor. Anytime I'm invited to, to share my ideas and thoughts, uh, like it's a great privilege. So thank you. No problem at all. No problem. Um, so everything that every time I have a guest speaker on, I always uh, ask a little bit about themselves, about their background, how they got into what they're doing and actually what they're doing at the moment. All right. So uh, <laughs> how did I get into what I'm doing? Um, it's, it's been a fairly um, long journey in the sense that I guess it started really at um, university, maybe even before that, you know, towards the latter stages of my secondary school, um, when I was in year 12, 13. And it's really just a fascination with human development and trying to understand, first off, myself, because the first place we start to understand the world is through our own perceptions and reactions to the stimulus around us. Um, to give people listening a little bit of a, a kind of summation of what I do right now, um, I am a social entrepreneur, so I run a nonprofit which works with young people from less advantaged backgrounds to equip them with the life skills that they need to succeed in the real world. So the things that school doesn't teach you, we come in and, and teach you those things. Um, so that was a business I started about 10 years ago. We've got an amazing team that deliver and, and do all of those programs now. And then most of my time, I, I run another business, a coaching and leadership development company where um, I'm working with organizations, businesses around inclusive leadership and resilience. So especially now, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's Black Lives Matter, and in a post-pandemic world, lots of companies are thinking about how to create psychologically safe environments where diversity and inclusion is at the forefront and trying to remove those systemic barriers to inequality. Um, and the way I do that is through coaching and using the things that I've studied for such a long time in neuroscience and psychology um, to help people. But my fascination with those things, like I say, started at an early age with me having panic attacks and anxiety attacks and not having even the words to describe those things, but knowing that something was definitely wrong or not happening. And even though I was labeled as a gifted and talented student or an academically able student, I wasn't able to foster my own flourishment. And so that's where I had to learn the hard way, unfortunately. And um, it came to a real, um, conclusion or denouement is the word I like using at university where I suddenly went from this transition from the structure of school to a lack of like you know in university you can you're you're the master you can do whatever you want right you're finally you've got that freedom but I really struggled with that transition as many young people do um started drinking started hanging out with people who smoking weed and dealing and, and just not in the right environment, didn't have the right habits. I was, you know, my favorite food at the time was a Bombay bad boy pot noodle. Like, and as someone who's into fitness, you can tell me how healthy or unhealthy that is. Um, and it, and I really suffered and I failed my exams in my first year. 
And then I really used that as a moment to kind of sit back and go like, this isn't me and this isn't what I want from life. So how can I change that? And I, and I read a book called um, Change Your Life with NLP. Um, and I'm now an NLP practitioner. So that's a study of neuro-linguistic programming. So that's basically your thoughts, your words and your behaviors and, and how we respond to those things and how we can create patterns, um, both positive and less positive or less resourceful, as we would say in NLP. And, and that book helped me to look at, well, okay, it's not what you want. Where do you want to be, you know, in five years, in four years and, and work backwards? And I wrote it down. I didn't think of it again, but it, it slowly started to kind of um, come true. I slowly started to change my psychology. Um, I got a therapist. I went to counseling. Uh, I started to get involved in student union and student activities just to make myself feel more part of the, the community at the University of Reading, which is where I was. And by the end of the degree, you know, I, I, I definitely turned things around. I actually won the student prize for commitment to the student union. So I won the overall Rusu award, as it's called. Um, and I set up a cultural show and did all these other things. And that set me on a trajectory. After I graduated, I really wanted to sample and taste like real life. Like what, I've been in this confined environment for so long. I've done the good little brown boy ticked all the boxes got the degree done my homework blah blah blah. but I want to go and actually experience um different things and so I volunteered in a shelter for teenage girls who'd been sexually and physically abused in Botswana in a, in a village called Maun uh I worked in Dhaka in uh Bangladesh on extreme poverty in a study visit as part of something I did with the British Council uh, and then I also most recently, just before the pandemic, went to the jungle refugee camps in Calais uh, to work with migrants there to kind of see um, and provide emergency aid and provision. So lots of those experiences, as well as starting those companies, becoming a coach, uh, those personal motivations, my own adverse childhood experiences, some of which I've not mentioned, um, they all coalesce to create this melting pot that is me. Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of like the the short and long version of uh, of you know what makes me tick and and what what interests me. I wanted to dive in a bit more about your NLP because this is something that I've been curious of. Um, I understand that to obviously to help people in regards in in this area with NLP, it takes more than just reading a book, right? However. I did get to understand, I've read it online. I've read some things online. Um, I've been recommended books and it really does sound like it's a beneficial prep or it's something that, that can help people overcome any particular block. So could you tell me a little bit about what that is and how that, how that helps people? Yeah, uh, interesting question. So NLP, like I said earlier, first of all, let's just start with the basics. It stands for neuro linguistic programming so neuro is your thinking linguistic is your words and programming is your patterns of behavior and generally speaking most nlp practitioners um or anyone who kind of has studied it in depth will say it's the psychology of excellence it's a study of how can we model excellence uh for example you know i've worked with lots of therapists psychologists counselors uh, in the past and in the present and that is the exploration of you know, something that happened in the past 
how it's impacting your psychology today and how you can start to remove those things. So sort of past focus, right? Like as a child, I had panic attacks. You know, what was that related to? Is it related to intergenerational trauma? Is it related to things going on at home? What's it related to? What is that? How is that impacting me today? What NLP is concerned with is knowing your outcome. Like what do you want to be? So for me, if I was a bodybuilder, and I wanted to be like Ronnie Coleman or Arnold Schwarzenegger or whoever, you know, Jeff Nippard, whoever it is. I'm looking at that person and I'm trying to reverse engineer a model and study the psychology of excellence. Whatever that word means for you, it's a fairly new branch of psychology. Some people, uh, especially in academic settings, don't consider it's considered kind of a bit of a pseudoscience in places. Um, but that said, I still believe and I've seen that it can be extremely powerful and helpful. If you've ever watched anything by Darren Brown, he uses a lot of hypnosis and NLP in his work, in his acts. And sometimes um, you actually have to sign an oath when you become a practitioner to say you're not going to misuse uh, this branch of psychology and the tools and techniques you've learned because you do study things like auto-suggestion, which is using your language to try and support someone to move towards a particular outcome. So, so there are some, um, let's just say shady areas of NLP because people have misused it, but at its best, at its finest, for me, it's it's a, it's a way for people to support themselves to get what they want in life. And that's, that's a wonderful, beautiful thing, right? Um, and on that thing, I just wanted to add the caveat. You can, you're only as uh, you can only be as malleable and suggestible as you would like to be. So, for example, you couldn't use NLP as there's a misconception sometimes that, um, you know, you can use NLP to uh, get someone to do what you want or, or to, you know, like use it in a very um, ulterior motive or way. Um, that's not necessarily true because also your what you want is the most powerful part of the equation. But there are lots of great techniques in NLP, this study of the psychology of excellence, where you can look at, for example, your personal history and change that story. You can look at your phobias and start to reduce the impact of those. You can look at your addictions even and start to really um, remove those by increasing the less desirable elements of those. So, for example, Tony Robbins, he has a, a famous technique where he, he a story he talks about working with someone who was addicted to smoking and he wanted to quit and so what he did was he made him sit there and smoke like two packs of cigarettes in one go and what he's doing there is dialing up what we call all of the little um the micro feelings the the auditory the sensory like smell taste touch and dialing it up the whole way so that you then you know because when you're engaging in any addictive behavior there is a point where you actually feel sick. Like I am addicted. Well, not addicted, but I love a good cookie. And I know there's definitely been days where I've had too many and I'm like, I feel sick. So it's about kind of associating that behavior with that olfactory um, sensation of too much. And that using that as a method to anchor those associations that you have. Because often we approach things in a very cognitive way rather than a holistic way. Because... Um, it's not just about all of this, like you got to work on the whole system, right? If you're training in the gym, you're not just trying to change, do your try train biceps, you got to make sure that you're not creating imbalances. So you're working on the triceps, you're working on the core, 
your flexibility, your VO2 max, like all of these ecology, that's what we call it in NLP, the ecosystem behind it. So it's using those things to help people in, in that way. And, and NLP can be extremely effective um, for that reason. Mm. So that's like a, a quick summary. Um, I'm not the most uh, advanced person in NLP. Um, there are levels. So you have a NLP practitioner and then you have a master practitioner. There's probably a master, master practitioner. Um, but for me, it's always like absorb what's useful, discard what isn't, add what's yours. And, and that practitioner level has definitely taught me a lot of things about um, how you can use it with young people in the classroom, with business leaders in corporate settings. And with yourself as well and your goals and things that you want to achieve. So, yeah, it's a really, really um, empowering branch of coaching and psychology. Yeah, uh, it definitely does sound like more up the street of what people need to encourage long term change. Um, when I first started my coaching career and I was just an, a young, naive coach, I thought that transforming people and helping them get everything everything that they want physically in terms of health and how they look was just a case of telling them, uh, these are your calories. These are your macros. Here's your training (laughs) program. There you go. And then it would be done. But, um, since then, and like I said, the reason why this podcast exists is to kind of uncover and get clear that, okay, if we want to enforce and encourage long-term change, that is actually going to maintain your health for long-term it's more about it's about working on the objective stuff like changing your habits changing your diet but there's some internal things that need to change as well um i don't know if you ever i know you've mentioned who you actually coach but have you ever used any of these skills to help people like lose weight for example or get improve their physical health um yes in parts i think like like you you referenced so beautifully there success is 10 percent mechanics like you know uh eating specific things doing a specific like even the mechanics of like going to the gym it's not actually that hard right for most people you go out of your house you walk to the gym and you start doing that but it's like you say the psychology which gets in the way and it's the adherence to those training protocols and the diet protocols that is the hardest part um so yeah i've definitely worked on that and, and actually what i found is success in one area of life often leads to success and growth in other areas so for example me learning how to be self-disciplined with my diet and my training protocols that's helped me with studying and focus and and work um because the greater vitality and energy you have that translates over but also the core life skills that you're learning of metacognition self-awareness adherence to a system or a strategy that you've set in place thinking in a future focused manner um so yeah there's definitely been times where i've worked with clients i'm not a fitness coach that's not specifically what i would market myself as but that has come up often because you can't help an individual without looking at for example some of the foundational things like how much sleep are you getting what quality of sleep are you getting when are you getting caffeinated and when are you stopping your your coffee you know throughout the day so these things impact your psychology in, in massive ways as do things like sugar you know carbohydrates all these different things so yeah it's definitely come up and i've had clients where they've had a goal of going to the gym and maybe the thing that they've struggled with um thinking of one particular person early in my career she was um overweight 
clinically speaking that's not my judgment and she wanted to go for regular runs she couldn't afford to go to a gym and so she was deciding okay i'm gonna go for runs in my local park but she felt a great deal of the barrier was she knew what to do she knew how to do it she went and got the nice trainers but the barrier was feeling insecure and the judgment of um, her self-talk of i'm really fat what are people going to think but also as a woman running around outside um she felt unsafe as well in her local area so we looked at some of those things and how nlp and coaching could support her uh, and this is the key thing with coaching people often mix up the two coaching and mentoring mentoring is you've got a six pack you know how to do it so you tell me how to do it coaching is about you're asking me questions to help me figure it out for myself and so we did some coaching around well what's stopping you you know what does that feel like when do you notice that feeling how do you respond to that feeling what would you like to feel instead what could you try which one of those options feels right to you so she's coming up that person is coming up with their own solutions to their own problems and um, I'm glad to say yeah that person through her own drive determination is nothing I necessarily did I was the sounding board um, has now achieved that goal so yeah, that's an example of, of a time where um, NLP has been used. I'm sure there's lots of examples as well. Yeah, uh, that's that sounds uh, fantastic. And I loved how you, uh, something which I emphasize with my clients as well, especially those who are more driven, is the impact of one area, the, the impact one area of their life has on other things as well. And I, and I emphasize that the skills are transferable to other areas. So like you said, the discipline you show with your nutrition will mirror other areas of your life. The fact, the very fact that you're getting healthier, that's going to increase your energy. It's going to increase your focus. Uh, and I think that's a, a definitely a big setting point for a lot of the people that I work with as well. Um, and good distinction between the mentorship and the coaching, because I am, I would consider myself to be a coach. I, I have been a coach my entire career, but because of, the places I've worked in in the past, it was, I would even call it a mentorship. I would call it a dictatorship. Um, but I think it's very important that these people uncover their own answers. And I think that they get more buy-in and they're more accepting of the changes if they're like, oh, you know what? I thought of this as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a very big point. I'm interested to know because something which I understand and something which I encourage my clients to think as well, and I've found a bit of a, a bit of resistance to this. It's the relationship with thoughts and emotions. And I think that a lot of uh, my clients that I work with, they kind of, I wouldn't say they're not open, but when it comes to changing our thoughts or changing our relationship with these thoughts and, and, and emotions, I think that's a big kind of step forward when it comes to making a change. Do you have any like actionable or tips or anything that help them think differently? Let's say. Hmm. I, I think the big mistake. Uh, well, let's say two. Number one is in a in a coach and a coachy relationship. The moment that both people, the coach probably already knows this, but the moment that especially the coachy realizes, uh, let's say oh, I'm working with you, and I have coaches and people I work with right now. The biggest shift is always when that person realizes it's not Ryan who is the driver of change in this relationship. It's not Ryan. 
it's me and 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 that is I, I, i'm saying it now it sounds so simple but <laughs> genuinely the moment that that shift occurs that's where transformation happens so it's it's first realizing that it's not it's not about ryan and, and the program and the coaching and the calls and the the features and the stuff the biggest agent of change here is me it's it's what i do and what i bring to this because i could be a very passive client and i just do the mediocre standard stuff or i could be someone who is the best version of me possible i'm i'm not leaving any stone unturned i'm doing everything that i can and it, i'm taking ownership and responsibility for that and you're just a catalyst to that right that's a really really important thing it's like a driving instructor sitting next to you but you're still driving the car like ultimately whether you pass or fail that test it's not the instructor it's you so it's what you do in that vehicle you are the captain of your ship right um when it comes to the relationship between thoughts and feelings the mistake that we often make because of pop psychology on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, there's so much advice out there, right? And there is a huge variance in the quality of that advice and also the agendas because you have these big multinational corporations and algorithms who want you to continue clicking on different things and to distract yourself away from your goals um, and to make a profit. And secondly, you've got people who are, who are looking to sell things or, or looking to promote things. So the internet and, and social media, you know, trying to use those bits of advice, it's it's very generic as well. Like it's not applicable to you and your situation every time. And so what do you do? The, the common narrative that we hear is you've got to change your thoughts, but how do you change what you're thinking about by like, how do you do that? What, what am I supposed to do? And actually you do it the other way around. You change your actions changing your actions creates new experiences and memories within the brain. And I'm sure everyone who's listening has heard of neuroplasticity, plasticity, which is your brain is not um, fixed. It's malleable. And so the advantage we have over a rhinoceros or a polar bear is that their hardware and their software, their thinking, their brains are fixed. They can't change those patterns of behavior. Whereas we as human beings, we can, we're capable of, metacognition which is thinking about our thinking now let's say for example i have a belief that i'm lazy i'm really fat and i'm just insecure and, and not confident well you can't think yourself into a new identity maybe you could meditate and and that might help and that is one method but a simpler solution is to take action because every time i choose a healthy snack over something that's highly processed high in sugar and I feel like I've made a good choice that reinforces my new belief of I'm making healthy choices now. And then that slowly over time, as you keep repeating that new behavior changes to, I usually eat healthy. And then it changes to, I often eat healthy. And then it changes to, I eat healthy. And then it changes at the highest level. It's called neurological levels and identity shift that I am someone who eats healthily. So it's not just a behavior. It's an identity. So a good example of this is, uh, and, and I'm sorry for the people who are listening. I promise I'm not one of those, but I'm a, I'm a vegan. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to admit it here. Um, but that identity shift, for example, um, when you make that identity shift, the behaviors that you take in accordance with that identity change. And so I don't drink milk because I'm vegan. I don't um, eat meat because I'm vegetarian. So creating an identity shift and reinforcing it with the behaviors affirms 
that new thought that you want to create. And that for me is far more effective than sitting in your room saying, I'm a lazy person who just plays video games all day and watches porn or whatever it might be that are your addictions or habits. Um, and there's always, you know, like using actions to reinforce those. That's why I often get frustrated with the toxic positivity of things like the secret and manifestation and, you know, the idea that, and, and I think these things have their place. So I don't want to knock them completely, but I just mean when we over-focus on, I'm going to burn my incense stick and affirm in the mirror that I am healthy, vibrant and losing weight. But equally, I can say and affirm those things. But if my entire day, my memories for those 24 hours is me eating the packet of Maryland cookies, me sitting on the couch all day, me not getting my steps in, me not eating any vegetables, then it's really hard to believe that. It's like a self-delusion, right? So it's more powerful for me. And I, I, I find myself naturally doing this. Like When I'm in the gym and I'm doing a bench press and I'm my lift is increasing either in volume or repetitions or weight i'm saying to myself wow i'm getting stronger and that is changing how i feel and so how we how we want to think and also in in a way you know how we want to feel they're byproducts of taking action and and that action also has a half-life right after i've had after i've been to the gym i feel great i'm like I, i i literally feel my pores opening up i feel like i can breathe better i just feel much more vitality within my body and so my thoughts and feelings change amidst that. So there's a link between these things that, you know, you change one of the three. So thoughts, feelings, and actions, the other two are, are impacted, but it's very, very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it is difficult to stare in the mirror and just say, I am really healthy. I'm creating a six pack without the necessary reference experience and evidence because you 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 see yourself all day, right? Like, you know the truth about yourself. And so you can say all the right things, but ultimately, uh, and there's a great story that illustrates this, if I could sh- just quickly share it. Um, one of my favorite modern thinkers is a guy called Swami Vivekanand. And he was a Hindu monk who um, was really interested in, in a lot of the ideas that I talk about. And um, when he was in training at this um, ashram, which is like a, a sort of monastery, uh, for monks in India. He was with his guru, his his mentor, his teacher. And his teacher said to the class, look, um, we're going to do a test. And the test is tonight. Uh, and by the way, where they lived, it was like a very basic village, you know, this small monastery, very basic things. Um, so it wasn't like fancy or anything like that, um, as you might see nowadays. He said, okay, tonight, I want you all to steal one grain of rice without anyone seeing you do that. And then bring it tomorrow in our first morning meditation session. So all the students were wondering, what? This is a bit random. Like, why are you asking me to steal from the kitchen? Secondly, why do I just want to steal one grain of rice? And thirdly, surely it's easy to do that. And so anyway, they go off and do this challenge. And the next morning, the students assemble. They line up. The teacher comes by. And each one of them, he looks at their hands. and They present this one grain of rice that they'd taken from the kitchen and they made sure no one saw them, you know, the different ways that they did it. And then he finally came to um, Swami Vivekanand and he held out his hand. Nothing was there. And so the teacher said, did you not, you know, what's wrong, son? Did you not understand the instructions? Did you lose your grain of rice? 
were you not focused? What happened? Because usually you're such a good student. You follow my instructions to the teen. He says, I did. I did follow your instructions. And I went to go and steal the grain of rice. But when I went to go and steal it, I realized I couldn't do that without anyone watching because I was watching. And I would see myself stealing that grain of rice. So it's impossible for me to do it without anybody knowing because I know the truth. And that that was the lesson that he was trying to paint to all of his students that, you know, if you're my coach, I could fill in my, my fitness pal diary and tell you I ate all the right foods and say I did the workout. But ultimately, I always know what I'm like. I'm I am the witness to my thoughts, words and behaviors. And so uh, that that to me is a, a really good example of I can stand in the mirror and make those affirmations that I'm healthy or that I'm focused or I'm productive. But if my behaviors are not in congruence and alignment with that, it's going to be very hard to change those things. Um, one final thing I do want to mention as well is that our, our brains, they have a primacy for emotion over logic. And so the way that the, the brain evolved, you've got the medulla or the brainstem, the cortex, and then the neocortex. And the medulla, the brainstem is like this reptilian brain. It, it's responsible for fight, flight, freeze, those core kind of survival needs, and then also reproduction and food. So making sure that like you survive. And, and obviously for obvious reasons, that brainstem has a primacy. Like if you're in a situation where you need to eat, like that part of the brain is gonna kick in and just make sure that you as a human being, as an animal survive. The second brain, the cortex is what is responsible for the emotion. And I love uh, the work of Dr. Steve Peters. There's a book called The Chimp Paradox, which is where I'm getting these ideas from. He talks about this brain is like a chimp, the cortex. It's very emotional. It has this like jungle mindset. It thinks in black and white. It's not nuanced at all, but it's very, very erratic. And it, you know, if something happens that like, um, someone cuts you up in traffic or, or barges you when you're at the gym or takes your dumbbell or something, that brain is triggered. And, it, and it's like a, a little monkey. It just, it doesn't respond to rational or ana analytical thinking. Um, and you respond to a situation emotionally first and then logically. Then you've got the final part, which is the human, the neocortex, which is, you know, the more nuanced brain, the, the thinking brain, the, the human being in you uh, that's thinking about things and creative and, and, you know, if someone did barge you in traffic or they took your dumbbell, they realize, oh, it was a mistake or, you know, they're able of able to think more um, in a nuanced way. So think about a situation like um, you wake up, you wake up late, you have a really unhealthy so-called breakfast, you eat loads of calories, you blow your caloric target. And yet you're trying to convince yourself like, I'm a healthy person. Um, what has happened there is the choices we've made it's not the human that made those choices. It's your inner chimp. And it is not possible to control your chimp. It's not possible. But you can learn to manage your chimp and create strategies to relieve um, or listen to what the chimp is saying. So, for example, if I'm at the supermarket and I'm craving something sweet as I'm getting to the till and I'm like, oh, what, do I, what chocolate do I feel like getting? That chimp has responded. So I can do two things. I can acknowledge it. Instead of like shutting it down or suppressing it, I can say, oh, I know you want something sweet, but when we go home, we're going to have, I don't know, some squash, which will sat satisfy that sweet craving, but it has no calories in and no added sugars. Or we'll eat something that's, you know, like raisins or sultanas or something to, to crave that sweet um, craving tooth. 
Um, and that's the idea is you've got to learn to manage your emotions rather than trying to control them. And so if you feel angry, like the other day, um, I was driving home, someone cut me up in traffic, almost hit my car. I just had it clean. I'm like, oh my God. Um, the first step for me is just acknowledging and feeling those feelings because you can't logic your way out of a feeling. you got to feel it. And what I mean is noticing and being mindful of the sensation I feel. So the first question I ask is, okay, what am I feeling? What's the label I want to give this feeling? Um, typically, and there's lots of great studies that have been done on this um, and how this changes across genders. Um, I don't know so much about non-binary, um, but I know across typically male and female. Um, as young boys, uh, if you look at the number of words that they use to describe how they feel, it's like the same three or four words. Like, oh, it's a bit long. I'm a bit tired. Can't be asked. It's very vague and broad. And and they compared that in this study. Uh, I can I can send you the link and we can put it in the, the show notes as a link. Um, they looked at girls in the same class and they had like 30 words to describe how they felt. You know, nuanced things like I feel joy. I feel despair. I feel anxious. I feel nervous. Um, I feel apprehension. And those are more specific labels than it's a bit long isn't it bro like <laughs> think about the difference if you're trying to articulate to me or yourself how you feel and you don't have the words or labels for those things it's going to be really frustrating and it's going to build up even more so the first step is always labeling like what am i feeling and and something i've been doing and my partner's been great at helping with this is being more distinct in the choice of words i use to describe and name what i feel because I can say, yeah, I'm just a bit tired, but is it fatigue or is it uh, a sense of hopelessness or solace or loneliness? Like, what is the exact thing I'm feeling? And there's a really good, if you Google the wheel of feeling, it's got a great example of some of the words that you can use that, you know, within anger, there's like 17 different words you could use. Um, and so for me, it's first off, labeling it, accepting it, like, this is what I feel in this moment. I'm not the Dalai Lama, I'm Keshav, I'm a human being, and I feel all kinds of emotions. And instead of trying to limit what I feel, when you learn to feel the full range and variance of your feelings and emotions, not only do you open up your acceptance of those things, it's been shown, it's been proven that the more joy I can feel, the more anger I can feel, the more joy I can, the more I open up myself to one emotion, the more I open up all of them. But conversely, if I close myself off to certain emotions and I try and be happy and positive all the time, I'm also closing off others. So you can't selectively numb what you feel. So it's like label it, feel it, and then decide how do I want to transmute this? Like, what do I want to do with this feeling? Um, and it, and it, anger can be a productive thing. That guy who cut me up in traffic, I was like, okay, you know what? I got a dash cam footage. I can report you to the police. Um, I didn't end up doing that, but, you know, like trying to channel it in a, in, a, in a positive and a healthy way. And over time, trying to learn strategies to cope with those things better and to deal with those things better in alignment with your inner chimp. And I literally imagine that, like, I'm walking around with this little five-year-old and he just gets, like, happy, sad, angry, excited at random things. And I am trying to manage that child. And I would never say to a child... Um, I would never raise my voice at a child or say, shut up or go away. Um, so why do we do that with our own inner child's, that emotive part of the brain? So I think it's really important to, for me, I just imagine 
you know, let's come in for a cup of tea. Like, let's talk about this. You know, what are you feeling? Okay. Yeah, I see that. You know, like really trying to empathize with that and then not end there because obviously feelings are important, but equally we want to take productive action, right? So um, then thinking through, okay, well, what, what is a useful way I can respond to those scenarios? And the greater experience you get, as with any type of practice, the better you get at, at those things. Uh, and that's what where I've been lucky in that. Um, I've purposely put myself over and over again in stressful environments to try and um, cope with those things better. So, for example, um, when I was volunteering in Calais, um, you know, the things that I did there, they helped me in other areas of my life to realize, like, what is actually something to stress about in this world very few things um after i came back actually from calais i just after many years uh, early on in my career saved up enough money to buy a new macbook and i bought like the state of the art spec out and um i was at the train station in victoria and my bag got stolen i had just started writing a book which was on that laptop my cards were in there um including the bank card for my non-profit um, someone stole those things, went and bought like tons of alcohol with that nonprofit charity card. So they used all our money. Um, and I remember at the time, like the moment I realized my bag was gone, my brain just automatically went. I felt the feelings of like despair, disbelief, anxiety. And I just stopped and just thought, hang on a minute. How do you want to respond to this situation? Because panic is an option, but it doesn't have to be the default. We can create something new in your response here. And so I just paused. I just went, okay. And I just assessed the situation. I have got my phone and I've still got one other bank card with me. So I can get home. So I know I'm safe. I know I have somewhere to sleep tonight. Cool. I know I can cancel all the cards and get the money back. Cool. It does hurt, but I know I can buy a new MacBook and I can write a new book. And, and that just alone, that little tiny moment, um, it just helped me to realize, okay, like I can manage my chimp in, in scenarios. Of course, there's going to be times where um, they are more challenging. Grief, for example, you know, the grief we feel when we lose someone close to us or a breakup, those things are really, really difficult experiences. Um, any kind of trauma is, but for me, it's taking ownership over what I think, what I feel and what I do ultimately. And sometimes we may not feel like going to the gym, but for me, my motto is always, I ne I've never in my life, I think I've only ever regretted one workout, but I've never regretted a workout. I've never regret regretted going to the gym, even if I just literally do a warm up and then go home. So my motto is just get to the gym. The best place to decide whether or not you're going to do a workout is in the gym. Like I'd rather make that decision once I'm in the car park and inside than at home on the couch, because one scenario is going to help me move towards what I want. And one is not, you know, it's too easy to. And, and, I, and I always think, oh, I should have just gone, actually. I could have done a quick 10 minutes. Um, so long answer to, to, to your really important question about like thoughts and feelings and how do we change those things. And I hope that anyone listening has got some practical advice. So just to summarize, you know, um, change your actions and that changes your thoughts and feelings know the difference between the chimp and the human and that you've got to manage your chimp not control it and learn to label what you feel accept what you feel feel what you feel 
and then transmute it towards action. So those would be how I would approach that. Wow, that was uh, fantastic, man. I was just letting you go and listening <laughs> to that whole thing. But that was pretty much because I did have questions uh, after the identity and the thoughts thing. But I think you pretty much covered it up when covered it when you uh, started speaking about emotions. Because I know that emotional reactions by eating food to stressful situations is something which a lot of my um, clients struggle with, especially when it's habitual and they've been doing it for years and years and it's like their de default. But I yeah. think you explained it perfectly when you said it's just about not kind of denying it and shoving it down, but about feeling it, accepting it and choosing a different course. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's really amazing. And ultimately all of this stems from your identity. Uh, well, that's the key to, I'm, I'm guessing the key to lasting change, actually changing who you, who you are essentially. Yeah. Who, who do you believe you are? And, and is that a, an identity that is inherited or discovered? And what I mean here is that um, I'm also thinking of, you know, if we think of like the most challenging scenarios where someone has an eating disorder um, or or some kind of a trauma that stored trauma is literally stored in the body. There's a great book on this called The Body Keeps the Score. And so I think it's it would be remiss to not acknowledge that someone may have those habits because that was a coping mechanism as a child around, you know, an adverse home environment. And so that's what they learned to found joy and pleasure from. So it's exploring that and then looking at is that something I inherited and so I didn't choose? And or is it something I designed and discovered? And an airplane doesn't take off by desire. It takes off by design. And so we have to, to explore those things and acknowledge the whole system. It's not as simple as, you know, don't buy junk food. And sometimes those vague sentiments, they disrupt and are really, uh, they demonize and, and really are just extremely jarring. It's really not helpful because it's like, yeah, I, I know that I, I, I need, I'm, you know, clinically obese or my body fat percentage is high and I've got all these adverse medical conditions because of that, or I'm at risk of heart disease, you know, all those things, but change is difficult. And, and when you've been working against 30 years of psychology, it's going to take some time. Right. So I think it's always, um, that's why I'm a fan of small steps. You know, it really does make a difference and look at it over a 30 year period. The people who are the most successful, at sticking to and keeping the weight off after following a diet are the people who can do it forever. And so it's easy for me to say, I'm never going to eat cookies again, but actually cookies do have a place within my diet, but it's just finding the right place for them at the right moments in the right quantities. Cause when you demonize a food and you create complete abstinence, there is also a psychological effect where you then create this holy grail effect where that food becomes even more appealing to you. And so you are more likely to engage in addictive binge behaviors as a result. So uh, one of my coaches, he used to say like, have a cookie, but just have like a piece of it every day, like have a bite so that at least that part of you feels like that food hasn't been denied. And, and you are, you are still eating in a, in a healthy, holistic, intuitive way. Cause I'll be like the, one of the things that I used to be a, um, super on it with my fitness pal and tracking. And I love the, like having a streak on there, but ultimately I was like, do I want to be doing this when I'm 53 years old? Not really. <laughs> like I don't want to. So I got to find a way to keep doing that, to keep, um, living a healthy life 
and building good habits, but in a way that's sustainable and that I can eat foods I enjoy, but also eat foods that I know are going to be helpful to my long-term vitality and, and well-being. So like there's such a an ecosystem within that right and and that's why i think we never want to demonize a food or a behavior or an individual um it's it is it is like the work of transformation and change is hard and you know think about how hard it is to change yourself let alone anyone else uh, so you know there's no magic pill or panacea but it's just small things done consistently um produce the, the big wins and i i'm a massive fan as well of making it simple so just before this call I, I had like a mug of um sorry a bowl of mung beans um and I eat that because it's easy all I have to do put like one cup into my instant pot a little bit of salt some water a little bit of ketchup for seasoning some herbs leave it on and then when it's when I'm having a break it's ready and I can eat that and I know it's nutritious it's got the fiber I need it's got some protein it's a, it's tasty it's easy to make and so guess what easy things to do are easy to do so it's trying to find ways to make the behaviors i want simpler and easier and the behaviors i don't want more difficult so you know if i ever do buy junk food i keep it in like the top cupboard at the back so i have to like do a bit more to get to that thing um it's still available in my house or in my fridge but i just don't make it the default whereas if you put a packet of cookies in front of me now and it was just on my table it will be so easy to just have a little snack. And so it's also thinking about ways that you can make the defaults, the ones that you want it to be. And, and, and yeah, identity change is powerful, but sometimes we don't choose our identities. They are chosen for us. Um, a good example in South Asian culture um, is for so long, and, and this is why there are increasing rates of obesity now in uh, the Indian subcontinent and amongst uh, the South Asian population is these things is a uh, big belly was seen as a sign of wealth and prosperity. When you look at it medically, that's a sign of you're at risk of all kinds of, you know, disease, cholesterol, diabetes, etc. So uh, sometimes those things are inherited. And one of the th ways that as social creatures, we love to connect is through food. And so that's also where that was really hard in my 20s to break that and, and decide like, no, the, I don't know if you've ever had the Indian sweet, a ladu. Uh, it's like literally uh, a ball of sugar and ghee, which is like, uh, it's like butter. So it's like butter and sugar. And it's like, a, it's my auntie would be like, oh, it's an energy ball. And I'm like, no, that's diabetes in a ball. <laughs> like if you eat too many of them. So, you know, finding ways to, to look at what is my identity um, and we're in a great time because now there are, because of representation, there are examples of, but like, I never used to see Indian men growing up with like six pack and amazing arms and like a great physique and they can do like muscle ups. Now there's like, there's even Indian superheroes, you know? So um, that stuff helps because then you, if you can't see it, how can you change it? And the, you know, our prime minister now, south asian and, and i didn't expect it but seeing that as someone of that culture i was like damn like it just it just hit me emotionally so i think that's also important is choosing your identity looking at how culture influences that um and having those healthy habits like you mentioned to support you along the way and it, and it being sustainable as well that just made so much sense and i know that a lot of um, my client base 
and a lot of my listeners in general are just going to be able to it's going to open a new way of changing their behaviors um and it's it's great that you were able so. to come on and uh give that much information so i uh, thank you so much for coming on man you're very welcome and, and thank you for having me on and anyone who listened this far i really appreciate your your time and, and focus in listening to me you know venting off about these ideas and, and it's things that i'm passionate about so i just want to wish anyone listening the best of luck and you're in good hands with ryan so just keep up the hard work and if ever i can be of value or help let me know yeah where can people find you uh i'm just at keshav bx k-e-s-h a v b x uh, on any platform if you 